Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Is God really in control? Is God in control? This is the question I want us to consider this morning. Is God really in control? It's a question that has been asked from believers throughout history, and it's a question that many of us wonder when the world seems to be spinning out of control. Is God really in control? See, we're living in days of a global pandemic, in a time when our nation is more divided than it's ever been. Our churches are more fractured than ever, and it feels like the entire world is on edge. We've witnessed a rapid decay of biblical values in forming culture, and instead, instead we've watched Christians willingly allow culture to determine how to interpret God's word. We're seeing preachers sacrifice exposition on the altar of entertainment, We're replacing theology with theatrics, and doctrine with destructive platitudes. We're witnessing our own politicians neglect and manipulate we the people all in an attempt for them to gain more power. And we're witnessing the devious ways of a terrorist organization trying to establish themselves among the world's nations as legitimate, even though these are the very same ones who execute Christians and women and oppress women and murder members of our military. We're living through days of extreme weather, Seemingly getting worse and worse and worse. See, when you survey all of the craziness going on in the world, sometimes you find yourself wondering, is God really in control? Does God really have things in hand? Or is the world spinning out of control? Our passage today is going to show us and answer this question and show us that God really does have everything under control. And yes, even those times when it seems like everything is spinning out of control. In Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 26, that's our passage we'll be looking at, we get a glimpse of Jesus in masterful control in the midst of the craziness of his betrayal, his rejection, and his upcoming murder. In the passage, Mark shows us three specific ways Jesus demonstrated absolute control even the day before his death. So let's turn to Mark chapter 14, verse 12. We'll look there in a minute. Now, verses 12 through 16 are kind of like the, the first pericope of, of our passage. And, and in, that, in those verses, we see the first example of Jesus exercising total control. Here, Jesus demonstrates control over the arrangements for the Passover. So we're going to see three specific ways and here's the first one. Jesus demonstrates control over the arrangements for the Passover. So starting in verse 12, Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, 
His disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now let's remember that at this point, Jerusalem is teeming with people and stirring with excitement because it was the Passover festival. And we know that the Passover was an annual celebration that commemorated God delivering Israel from their slavery and bondage in Egypt. About 1500 B.C., Right before the mass exodus from Egypt, the Jews were told to sacrifice a lamb, take the blood of that lamb, and then paint it on the doorposts of their house. So, when God judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians, he he spared or passed over those who had the blood of the lamb painted over the doorposts of their house. So God spares the Jews, they flee, they get chased by Pharaoh and the Egyptian army all the way up to the edge of the Red Sea, then God miraculously parts the waters, providing a way of escape for his people. So every year the Jews would make their way to Jerusalem in celebration of this festival. And part of this Passover celebration involved a Passover meal. We call this Passover meal a Seder. Um, remember, Jerusalem is packed with people, millions of people. They estimate two to, three, two to three million people. And that would have made it very difficult for everyone to line up their, their housing and seating and food arrangements. So knowing they needed to make the necessary preparations, the disciples asked Jesus, where are you going to have us go so we can go and prepare and get that place prepared for the Passover? Verse 13. And Jesus sent two of the disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Okay, does any of that sound familiar there? Jesus sending two disciples, telling them what to do, what to look for, what to say, who they're going to see. See, remember, just, this is on a Thursday, so just four days uh, before this was um, uh, that Sunday, that triumphant entry when Jesus told two of his disciples to go into the village to find a donkey. He told them where to go, who they'll see, what to say, all that. So this is very similar to that. He sends two disciples, tells them to follow the man carrying a jar of water. And I love these little snippets of humor that we see in scripture. And now you wouldn't know this is funny, but it is, I promise. See, The disciples probably would have laughed at this because Jesus is telling them, you're going to go to the city and you're going to find a man carrying a bottle of water, a a, a big vat of water. The problem is, in those days, men didn't do that. Women did. So it's kind of like the modern day equivalent of Jesus telling the disciples, you're going to go into the city and find the dude with the purse and follow him. That was very much what it was like. But obviously, it makes it pretty, pretty clear who they're going to find. So they're to find the man with the water jug, and they're to follow him. So Jesus continues, going on in verses 14 and 15. It says, And wherever he enters, this man carrying the jug, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. So Jesus foresees everything that's going to happen. He recruits two of his disciples for this secret mission. He tells them how everything is going to unfold. And the reason why this is so hush-hush is because Jesus doesn't want Judas knowing where they're going to go and have this final Passover meal because he'd probably tell the authorities who would come lock up Jesus just a few hours earlier than was in Jesus' plan. So, and and because Jesus had some very big plans for the meal that they're going to have. In fact, we're going to see it's going to be the most important meal 
ever in human history. So he's simply ensuring that everything is as he wants it to be. So the two disciples he enlisted, they, they, they follow through. They do exactly as they were told, verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Everything was exactly as Jesus said it would be. Jesus demonstrates his, super, his, his supernatural knowledge of all of these, the, these intricate and moving pieces. He masterfully controls every subtle detail for arranging the Passover meal. Now, the, the, these facts reveal that Jesus is deity wrapped in flesh. Mark makes that case time and time and time again throughout his gospel. For, for only God could have such knowledge like that. Only God can demonstrate such control and authority like that. Only an all-powerful, all-knowing God can exercise absolute authority over every aspect of creation. And that's what we see Jesus doing all throughout Mark. See, if there is any one thing Mark's been showing us, it's that Jesus does have the same absolute authority and divine attributes as God the Father himself. He is the Holy One of God who took on human flesh and demonstrated his divine authority over demons, over diseases, over deformities. He demonstrated his authority over the forces of nature, causing the winds and the waves to obey his words. He demonstrated his authority over things like chemistry and molecular biology, causing loaves, loaves of bread and, and pieces of fish to be multiplied in his very hands. And in case anyone might assume these are some elaborate parlor, parlor tricks that Jesus was pulling all along, he validated his authority by raising a 12-year-old girl from the dead and raising his best friend from the dead. So as you look at Mark's gospel as a whole and you follow all of these amazing miracles and works of Jesus, what you begin to see is that Jesus has always had control. Nothing was happening to him, nothing was happening to his followers, nothing was happening to his plans that was outside of his control. Yes, even though he was only one day away from being executed, he still controlled it all. Christ is always in complete control. Now in verses 17 through 21, the next section of our passage, we see a second specific way Jesus exercises authority. Here, Jesus demonstrates control in the announcement of his betrayal. Jesus demonstrates control in the announcement of his betrayal. Look at verses 17 and 18. And when it was evening, he came home with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Okay, so Thursday night rolls around, and Jesus and his crew go to this place, this upper room where the Passover is already. They're back inside the gates of, of Jerusalem, and they're borrowing this house from some well-to-do homeowner. They find their spots around the table, and then Jesus leaves the disciples through the Passover celebration. And if you were here some months ago, if you remember a little earlier in the year, we had David Brickner the president from Jews for Jesus, uh, he actually came up here and did uh, a whole Christ in the Passover demonstration. I think you could probably find that on YouTube. It was an amazing demonstration if you want to kind of understand what the Passover meal, um, all the different elements that were involved. I'd encourage you to go back and find that. See, but little did the disciples know as they're sitting here at this Passover meal that, that the one serving them, the sacrificed uh, lamb, was himself going to be sacrificed as their spotless lamb the very next day. 
So they're reclining and eating, and then Jesus drops a bombshell announcement on them. He says, guys, listen up. One of you, one of you is going to betray me. Mark is again emphasizing Jesus' predictive power. Jesus has supernatural of the fact of his betrayal, who it was that was betraying him, when he was going to be betrayed, who he was betraying, who he was getting betrayed to. He knew everything that was going on. And here is what I love. See, even in the face of sinful, devious humans secretly making plans to betray Jesus, the perfect loving creator, Jesus is still giving Judas every opportunity to repent. Every opportunity. You know, we, we sang that song earlier, Reckless Love. You know, and when you sing that song, obviously when you sing the song reckless, you're not calling God reckless when you say that, that word. That's not, the, the, the definition of that word isn't recklessness in the sense of carelessness, but, but reckless in the sense that, that he loves so deeply without any regard to his own well-being, without any regard to himself. He's always thinking about others. And when we look at that kind of love, because we don't love that way, we look at that and think that's pretty reckless. Well, that's God's love. And he's demonstrating that to Judas here. See, Jesus already knows Judas met with the religious leaders to devise a plan to capture him, but he still, he still desires nothing more than having Judas repent. And what's cool is that Jesus does not call Judas out among the disciples. He does not do that. Now, maybe he's attempting to stir conviction in Judas, which I think he's doing. But as far as Judas is concerned, no one knows what he did. No one. But now that Jesus makes it clear that he does know someone's going to betray him, you can just imagine Judas sitting there, his palms getting sweaty, his his heart racing. And, And by the way, the way the seating arrangements were, Judas would have actually been right next to Jesus. Uh, Judas on one side, John on the other side, and those were like two uh, positions of honor. So (laughs) just to to understand the the love of Christ in this whole scene, he allowed the one who was going to betray him to sit in the place of honor because he loves the one that gets lost that much, like we were singing about. So after Jesus announces his betrayal, Mark tells us the reaction of the disciples in verse 19 says they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Lord, is it I? So upon hearing Jesus say that one of them is going to betray him, we're told the disciples grow sorrowful. Their hearts are grieved with heaviness. Now, now to their credit, they don't take the macho route and say, oh, not I, Lord, I'm too strong for that. They don't take the finger pointing route and say, it's him. Him, no, it's definitely that one right there. They they don't do any of that. Instead, deep sorrow stirs inside of them and it leads them to examine their own hearts. They're starting to understand the weakness of their flesh and how they could so easily fail, so they start to look inward. And one by one they ask, Jesus, is it me? Verse 20, he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. So when the disciples ask who the betrayer is, Jesus says, it's one of you 12 dipping the bread with me. Now they're probably thinking at this point, thanks a lot, Lord, that helps a whole bunch because all 12 of us are dipping the bread with you. But again, Jesus is providing an opportunity for Judas to prevent. 
to, to, to repent. All Jesus has to do, all he had to do this whole time, was point to Judas and be like, hey, that's the betrayer. That's the one who's, gonna, who's the traitor. And in an instant, you know, fiery Simon Peter would have gotten up, went behind Judas, got him in a rear naked choke and made him tap out. But Jesus does not do that. I may have, but that's why I'm not Jesus. Instead, Jesus demonstrates his control over the entire situation by reaching out to Judas in love over and over and over again face of his own impending death. Like, can you imagine if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? You wouldn't be thinking about showing and lavishing love on every single person. That's the love of Christ. See, he uses his control not for selfish purposes, but for selfless purposes to express his love. And then Jesus continues in verse 21. He says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. See, Jesus is reminding his followers that behind this uh, treacherous act of betrayal that's happening, that God's divine purpose is still being carried out. And this is like one of those cool passages that you look at and you wonder, like, how does like, God work through evil to accomplish his purpose, even though man has free will? This is like one of those beautiful passages that you study and you kind of see both of those things going on. See, remember the Old Testament prophesied that Messiah must suffer and die. So none of this is obviously catching Jesus by surprise. Nothing happening to him is going to thwart what God wants to accomplish. So in his sovereignty, he's going to use this terrible evil to bring about good, as God often does. Nevertheless, Judas isn't off the hook. See, this is Jesus' final warning to Judas. It's a warning that should have shaken him to his core. He warns Judas of the terrible fate that awaits him if he follows through. And though Jesus gave him a way out many times, Judas refuses to repent. He refuses to receive Jesus' gentle and loving forgiveness. And as a result, he'll face some scary judgment. Like every person who rejects Christ, Judas would be condemned forever. So now it's at this point in the scene where Judas leaves Jesus and the disciples um, so now it's just Jesus and the disciples, no Judas. They're in the upper room and they move, and, and Judas leaves, moves forward with his plans of betraying Jesus. And so we see yet another way Jesus remains in control even when things around him are spinning out of control. He demonstrated supernatural control over all the details and all the arrangements for the Passover meal. He demonstrated supernatural control in the announcement of his betrayal, letting Judas know, I know it's you. He demonstrated this, this divine foreknowledge. Now in the rest of the passage, we see a third way Jesus exercises total control. He demonstrates control throughout the approaching of his execution. Jesus demonstrated control throughout the approaching of his execution. At this point, the narrative shifts and it zooms in and focuses on the Passover meal, which is now going to evolve into something entirely new, something entirely meaningful. Verse 22 says, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Now, if that language sounds familiar, because that's what we read every single time we observe the Lord's Supper here. 
We, we, that, this is what we read. Now, those are words not of a Passover celebration, not of, of a Passover meal being celebrated uh, by those who are looking back to the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, but these are now words of a new meal belonging to a new covenant. See, on this, this solemn Thursday night before his death, Jesus inaugurated the new covenant with the new celebration. This new celebration is what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. And realize that for about 1,500 years, 1,500 years, the Passover feast was observed in almost the same exact format with the same symbols, the same rituals year after year after year. But now as they're getting to the end of their meal, Jesus completely changes the script. See, the Passover script said that the one leading the meal would take the bread and hold up the bread and say, this is the bread of affliction for our fathers when they suffered in the land of Egypt. But now, Jesus changes this 1,500-year-old script. He takes the bread. The disciples are getting ready to hear, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in Egypt. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, take, this is my body. He's taking the bread and he's giving it new meaning. He no longer equates it with the suffering that his ancestors endured in Egypt. He now equates the bread with his own body and his own suffering because the suffering that he's soon going to endure in his perfect body will unleash the floods of redemption and blessing for everyone, anywhere, at any time who seeks forgiveness in Christ. Jesus knows what he needs to do to secure this forgiveness for all of humanity. And though none of the others entirely grasp what's going on all around them, Jesus remains in control. He sees the big picture. He knows everything. And, and notice here how Mark says that Jesus uh, took the bread into his hands. He took it into his hands. Again, that's another statement of Jesus' control. He was in control the entire time. His death was a voluntary Act. His destiny was in his hands, which meant that he was in control. Even death couldn't force itself upon Christ. If he was going to die, it was going to happen according to his own accord, according to his own plan. And then verse 23. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Now, when we celebrate and commemorate the Lord's Supper, we have one cup. When, uh, during this time, at, at this meal, this Passover feast, there would have been four cups. Um, so Tim Keller, if you know Tim Keller, he's a pastor and author, he wrote a book called The King's Cross, and it kind of helps to explain the scene. See, the Passover meal included uh, four different uh, points, four different instances during that whole meal in which the leader of the meal, which would have been Jesus here, they would hold a glass of wine, they'd get up and they'd explain the meaning of the Passover. And there were four cups of wine. Each of the four cups of wine represented the four promises made by God to Israel in Exodus chapter 6. And the four promises are this. The, promise was, the first promise was for the rescue from Egypt. So that was the first The second uh, was for freedom from slavery. That was the second cup. The third cup was for redemption by God's power. And then the fourth cup was for a renewed relationship with God, uh, getting to enjoy perfect communion and fellowship with God in, in, in a new kingdom. Those are the four cups. So now the third cup would typically come at, when the meal was, was getting close to an end. All right, so what does this all matter? Well, it's likely, very likely, that here in verse 23, the cup that Jesus raises and blesses is the third cup. The third cup is the cup of redemption. 
is very fitting, right? Since he's going to be now the redeemer. But again, Jesus applies an entirely new meaning to the cup. Verse 24. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So Jesus identified this cup as his blood of the new covenant. The deep red color of the wine in the cup was was symbolic of Jesus's atoning blood. The sacrifice of Jesus and the spilling of his blood are going to establish a a new covenant between God and people. His blood is going to open the door for a new relationship between God and humanity, just like the prophets of the Old Testament had promised. And just like that, just like that, Jesus turns a new chapter in human history where men, women, and children of all countries and languages will be saved as a result of Jesus' atoning blood. Thank you, Jesus. See, whereas the Passover meal represented an ancient rescue to be remembered, the the Lord's Supper here, this remembers and recalls a, a, a newer and far greater meal, a newer and far greater rescue. The rescue the Passover commemorated was, was limited in its scope and available to the Jews. But the rescue we commemorate in the Lord's uh, Supper is unlimited in reach and available to everybody everywhere. And Passover, you remember, recalls the time when it was necessary for the Jews to paint their wooden doorposts with the blood of a sacrificed lamb. Well, now the Lord's Supper recalls the once-for-all sacrifice of the spotless lamb of God who spilled out his own blood on the wooden cross for us. This has made it possible for people to experience freedom, not from slavery in Egypt, but freedom from slavery to sin and bondage to death. So now Jesus winds down and he concludes the Passover meal by refusing the fourth and final cup. Verse 25, he says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. See, the, the fourth cup, if you remember in the Passover, that was the cup that, that represented a new relationship with God. Um, it represented um, kind of that, that time in the future when God was going to restore all things and dwell with his children. But instead of offering that cup, Jesus vows to wait. He waits because he knows there's some really important work that must be done. His sacrificial work, which is happening the next day after this, but also his spirit-empowered work through the church age. That's been going on now for 2,000 years. See, make no mistake, Jesus will drink of this cup new in the kingdom. If he said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. This entire passage has served as a reminder to us that Jesus is always in control. Even the times we question God, wondering if he's really in control, Mark has proved to us again and again that Jesus is always in control. He demonstrated control over the arrangements for the Passover. He demonstrated control in the announcement of his betrayal. He demonstrated control throughout the approaching of his execution. Jesus demonstrated control then when it seemed like the world was spinning out of control and we can be confident that he remains in control now. When the world spins out of control, Christ remains in control. When the world spins out of control, Christ remains in control. That's the truth I want you to remember from today's passage. When circumstances in your life cause 
your world to spin out of control when you look at the craziness of society and wonder yourself, how can anything good come out of this? How can this mess be fixed? Rest in the truth and knowledge that you have a loving Father and a loving Savior who is in control. And maybe at that point you're saying, but, but Ken, don't you see how bleak and miserable and chaotic everything is? I do. But Christ is in control. What seems like utter chaos to us is nothing but complete calm to him. That's our Savior. So when you look and you say, our whole nation's crumbling, that's what it seems like, doesn't it? But Christ is in control. Jesus calls the shots, not Washington. He's the one who directs our future. Our future isn't determined by the government. We don't anchor our hope in political parties or platforms. We place our trust in Christ and in Christ alone who stands in authority above every power player on earth. Jesus is in control. He will always remain in control. And because he's in control, whatever he says happens. Nothing can foil his purposes. Nothing can catch him by surprise. Nothing can set back his plans. Nothing is outside of his entirely, perfectly complete control. Church, if we really believe that Jesus is the sovereign ruler of all, then we really have no reason to be plagued by fear and worry. You can trust that whatever comes your way, God has allowed it to come your way, and if he's allowed it to come your way, he will see you through it. So instead of panicking like we do, instead of trying to control all of these unknown variables, trying to make sense of all the stuff going on around us, God is in control. Rest in him. I love how the late British evangelist Alan Redpath put it. He said this, He said, there is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. If it's come that far, it's come with a great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. But as I refuse to become panicky, as I lift up my eyes to him and accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my own heart, no sorrow will ever disturb me. No circumstance will cause me to fret, for I shall rest in the joy of what my Lord is. That is the rest of victory. Let us remember that when the world spins out of control, we can rest in the truth that Jesus is in control. And the passage closes in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus led his disciples through this very first Lord's Supper, and they closed their time in a hymn of worship. And in just a few moments, we're going to do that. You know, in the early 20th century, there was a German philosopher um, and physician by the name of Albert Schweitzer, And he wrote this book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. It's a a book that was written really early 1900s, but it's had tremendous influence and impact um, in in Western uh, culture and thinking. 
And the book was essentially an attempt to study the various ways that biblical writers wrote about the life of Jesus. But, but the thing is, the author, Schweitzer, he was among a group of, of scholars who believed that once Judas betrayed Jesus, things got completely out of control. Everything started escaping Jesus' control until he simply became another helpless victim, victim killed at the hands of the Romans. According to Schweitzer, Jesus actually believed his ministry on earth would bring about the end of history right there and then. Listen to what he says in the book. He says, there is silence all around. John the Baptist appears and cries, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after that comes Jesus, and in the knowledge that he is the coming of the Son of Man, he lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. But the wheel of the world refuses to turn, and he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the conditions of the kingdom, he's destroyed them. The wheel rolls onward and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. See, according to Schweitzer, Jesus was simply wedged in the grinding clogs of history and all of his great kingdom plans died with him. But I think... We have seen enough throughout Mark to know this is entirely untrue. See, if there's one thing we learned from today's passage, it's that Jesus displays incredible command and control even in his betrayal, even in his journey to the cross. His foreknowledge of the complex arrangements of everything going on with the Passover meal proved this. His supernatural knowledge of who it was that was going to betray him, when, where, all of that, that all proved this. And his command over the Lord's Supper proved this as he voluntarily took the bread into his own hands, as he voluntarily took the cup into his own hands, showing that he's the captain of his own soul. He's the master of his own fate. So the picture we see is that Jesus wasn't crushed in the gears of history. He was turning the wheels of history. As one commentator said, Jesus maintained sovereign, premeditated, and detailed mastery. The master's mastery of his dark times gives us great hope during the darkness that awaits us as a natural part of living. Church, a God who remains in control when the very foundations of his own earthly existence are crumbling is a God who can be trusted to sustain us when our world is crumbling. Even in the darkness of days, we can hope because Jesus remains in control. There is nowhere, not one place in the world, not one square inch in the entire domain of human existence where Jesus cannot look and say, that is mine. He is in control. So though our problems may last for a while, though they might not all end, though our challenging circumstances won't vanish, we can know Jesus is in control. And because Jesus is in control, we need to start shifting our focus away from our own inadequacy in controlling what's going on and shift it to Jesus's inadequacy who's running everything. In the words of that great theologian, Gloria Gaither, with each new experience of letting God be in control, we gain courage and reinforcement for daring to do it again and again. So when times get tough, hang on to the faithfulness of God, remembering he really is in control, cling to the promises of Jesus who proved that he actually has the power to see his promises through. Amen?
So now, as we turn to the Lord's Supper, let's take the elements and gaze into the future with hopeful anticipation of that time when Jesus returns, that time when salvation is consummated, and that time when we get to eat this bread and drink this cup anew in the kingdom of Jesus.